Hey, look, before I kick off, I want to ask a question. I know the answer already, just the, the degrees will be different among us, but just want you to be honest. Look back over your past history. For some of us, that's a, that's a, there's a bit more history there than others. But just think about it. Can you ever recall modeling your behavior or your look on someone else at some stage in your life? Uh, you know, some celebrity, maybe it was a favorite singer, maybe uh, it was a, a sports star. So in your past, is there big hair and leg warmers? If you grew up at that time, or, or, or maybe at another time, was it hair gel or blue suede shoes? Was it slick fades or uh, groovy threads? Man, you know, did you ever dance like your hero? Did you ever try and sing like your favorite star? Try and do those runs even though your voice couldn't handle it? Did you, did you worship like your favorite worship leader? Did you, did you move like them? I, I don't know about you, but we see it in sports all the time, eh? We see it in sports all the time. As a rugby fan, you notice with kids who are kicking goals, they would all try and copy Johnny Wilkinson or Dan Carter, so they're all standing there, you know? E- everything's copied, you know? They're, they're, they're modeling themselves on their start. Or you see it with cricket batsmen, you know, as they, they wander down and they, 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 they tap, you know, in between the overs, they, they, with their bat, they, they tap the pitch. And I'm thinking, you're on a concrete pitch, what are you tapping? But they're, they're copying. This is what they do, and this come back you know, and they come back and they copy their heroes. You know, um, in more recent times, you know, my sons, they, they, they like the NBA and so they want to get replica shirts or singlets, knockoffs because they're cheaper. But, but you know, NBA, so, and you've got to have the right number. And, you know, and so for my boys, it's name and, and names, you know, guys like Butler, DeRozan, Bagley, you know, and so, so people copy their styles, their actions, may uh, copy their dress, their mannerisms, their speech patterns, even their haircuts. You know, and, and, and who knows, in 2019, there was a, a, a phase that sort of kicked off in this country called mullet mania. And it was kicked off by our Christian brother, good Christian brother, Jack Goodhue, good crusaders man, good all black. And it, it, it absolutely swept the country. Yeah, sorry too to Crusaders fans with the loss to the Chiefs last week, but didn't the Chiefs play well? Yeah, that's just an aside. Sorry, back on track. Sorry, just about you, Lord. Okay. And, um, but it slowly spread, and so you started seeing the other All Blacks started getting the mullet. So Brody Retallick, that's terrifying. Six foot eight mullet running at you. The Barrett brothers, and even the Chiefs captain, Sam Kane, uh, sported uh, mullets at one stage. And then what happened is that in the past couple of years, before I realized this mullet mania thing, I started seeing kids playing rugby with these glorious mullets, you know, taking the field. Magnificent. The flowing locks of their Tennessee top hat, you know, the, 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 the shaggy glory of their Mississippi mud flap, just there for all to see. Proudly on display. And you go, so why are these kids... All, all wearing mullets. Well, because their heroes are. The people they look to are. Because they admire these players so much. And you see, as human beings, we want to be like who we look up to. That's just a natural thing. Actually, p- part of our being in the image of God is that we worship. Everyone worships something. And, you know, uh, you know and so for us, as Christians, as we look to Jesus, we sang those words, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. 
And so what happens is, as, as we, we look to Jesus, we look to become more like him, we model our lives on him, and we resemble what we worship. All human beings do. And, uh, and so it becomes an important thing. But I reflect a little bit further on this. A guy called Charles Sheldon wrote a book, 1896, and it was called In His Steps, a very famous Christian book. And it was subtitled, What Would Jesus Do? Anyone read that book? And subtitled, What Would Jesus Do? Classic of Christian literature. And then in the 90s, for those of you who remember, they had the WWJD bracelets for Christian youth. WWJD, what would Jesus do? So kids had a physical reminder in any situation, oh yeah, here I am, what would Jesus do? And you got this bracelet, okay? So a big, big fad in the 90s. And it's a great question to ponder, isn't it? What would Jesus do? You know? But it raises a bit of an issue for me, and I'd like you to stay with me a bit here. Allow me to sort of explain by way of illustration. So I'm playing tennis with my son, and he hits it back to me. Seven years old, he, he was practicing his serve, and he couldn't get it in the square. I said, I'll give you 50 cents for every time you get it in. $14.50 later. We never did it again. He did really well. rope a Kid, kid had me. But imagine I'm playing tennis with my son, and then he hits it back to me, and then just before I hit it, I think, hmm, what would Rafael Nadal do with this ball? And then I think, okay, so he might play a little backhand drop shot over the net, draw him up, and then come around and, and play a, a massive uh, forehand smash with topspin into the far back left-hand corner. Cool. You may see the problem is that knowing... What, what Spain's raging bull, the king of clay, Rafa, would do, and me actually doing it, are two different things. Let me give you another example. I'm, I'm singing, and I'm thinking, yeah, I want to sing, and here's a song. Wow, one of my favorite singers. I'm going to get up and sing her song, Adele, and uh, Rolling in the Deep. Yeah, I really like that song, so I'll get up, and, and then I'm about to come to the chorus where it has a, like a, what is it, a... a, a, a a, a, a C above middle C is the highest note. You know, we could have had it all. And I start, you know, and so I'm coming up to that and I'm just about to hit that. And then I think, what would Adele do with this note? And again, you may see the problem. That there's a big difference between what Adele would do and what Simon might be able to do with his voice that needs to maybe drop about eight octaves in order to reach the note. So part of, part, of my, uh, part of my thinking here is knowing what Jesus would do and doing it or even being it, it's not that simple. It can easily fall into a works thing. Stay, stay with me if you can. Doing the Christian life could become such a lonely drudgery of works dependent solely on our own efforts as we seek to imitate Jesus in our own strength. If we're not careful, we could end up making a whole lot of rules about what we can and what we can't do. We end up doing things in our own strength. And if you take this route, we're likely to get worn out. Because it's in your own strength, you're liable to become self-righteous and start to become a bit cold towards people. So I think we all know eh, that rules don't change hearts. Revelation does. 
when the lights go on. Transformation does. And so the question for me this morning in light of, of the journey that we're on here is, see, to become more like Jesus isn't simply about just gritting my teeth and striving to do right. That striving and effort is important, but it's not primary. So the question for me is this. How do I become a person who can do what Jesus would do? How can I become a person? How can I be the man or the woman that God intends me to be? Because it's not about a mask and an outward action. It's got to flow from an inner reality. How do, how do I become that person? And so, just by way of prefacing where we're going, we need someone bigger to help us. We're not all that. And this is one of the key things about the person of the Holy Spirit that I, that I so appreciate and that I so love is that my striving to do what Jesus would do, to be what Jesus would have me be, must be in partnership with God. It's me 100% of the way, striving, trying, looking to be disciplined with God 100% of the way. So we must be in partnership. And this is where the work of the Spirit becomes so key. You know, the Spirit is so intimately involved in our journey, in our lives as Christians, and helps us to be the people who can do what Jesus would do, to be the people who can do and be what Jesus would have us be. And a word that often comes up to describe the Spirit's work here is sanctification. It's one of those big words. We don't use it in normal conversation. Eh? It's one of those christian easy words. I can remember when I first came to this church back in the day when the stage was over in the corner and we're singing an old Hillsong song, you know, I've been delivered. I've been released, restored and sanctified in Christ. I've been re- and I turned to the fellow next to me. I said, do you know what sanctified means? He went, nah, been released. <laughs> so it's one, of those, it's one of those sort of technical sounding words. It's a big word, but it's a word that carries so much biblical truth. And it carries a couple of meanings. And this morning, I, I just want to look at, at those meanings around what it means that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. That's where we're going. And how that helps us in terms of this WWJD question. And so the first, first point is, is that the Holy Spirit sets us apart. The Holy Spirit sets us apart. Now, if we look at the New Living Translation, and I've got it here on slide, but if we look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, the New Living Translation says, you were made holy. So Paul is just talking to the Corinthians and saying, you know, people, you know, once there was a time when you weren't in Christ and you worshipped idols and you were adulterers and you thieved and you were greedy and you were abusive, but you're not that anymore. And he says, you were made holy. Why? By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, because that's where salvation comes from, and by the Spirit of God. Okay, cool. So the Spirit involved in this. And it's very easy. See, again, made holy, you were sanctified. So it's really easy for us to read that and go, oh, you were made holy. What do we think that means? Oh, you were made morally righteous, morally pure. So we think of someone being made holy, and so now they walk in six inches above the ground, halo, quiet little music in the background, and they just dispense grace. 
bless you, bless you, because I'm holy, holy. Hey. That's, a, that's what happens with the phrase, holier than thou. You think you're so morally superior. So we think this idea of made holy is that now you are morally righteous and pure. That is our sense. But actually, it's more the idea, if, if we go into the letter, Paul is writing to these Corinthians, and in this chapter, he's addressing some pretty unchristlike behavior in the church. A whole lot of them are taking one another to court and suing one another in the public eye. Paul says, this isn't a good look. They're indulging in sexual immorality. They're involved in party politics, waving the banner of their favorite leader and saying, your leader sucks, and this is all going on in the church. And so when Paul says you were made holy, he clearly isn't saying, now you are morally pure and righteous in your behavior. But rather what he's saying is, and, and it gets picked up in other translations, the Living Bible says you are set apart to God. Or the Good News translation, you have been dedicated to God. And so what Paul is saying is, you were once that, but now you've been set apart to God. Act like it. Okay? So, so you have been set apart. And so this is at the root of, of this whole idea of holy, is this idea of set apart. So in, in the Old Testament, the temple was holy. It was set apart. It was a different building. You didn't go running around in there bouncing balls and spilling your coffee because it was set apart from other normal buildings for normal use. Israel, there were lots of nations, but Israel was set apart to God in a special relationship. So they, in turn, would be a light to the other nations. I, now that I'm married, have been set apart to Rachel. So this idea of set apart is at the basis of being sanctified, of being holy. So this is a point. So the moment we came to Christ... We were set apart. We were made holy. We were set apart to God. We were claimed by God. We're His. From the moment we made that choice to follow Christ, we were set apart. You're not the world's anymore, Simon. You're not what the world says. You're what I say. You're mine. And that, see, again, through worldly eyes, we can go, oh, that's kind of jealousy and possessive. No, not if, not if, the, not if the, the lover and the beloved are in a, in a healthy as relationship. So, so this whole idea, set apart. So through the sanctification of the Spirit, we're given a new position. We're no longer our own. We're set apart and adopted into the family of God. We become children of God. God says, you're mine. You belong with me. So listen to what I say, not what the world says. You are set apart to me. Our identity, our significance comes from God because we are his. We are set apart. So the whole, and that's the Holy Spirit's work. He sets us apart. He says, that's not who you are anymore. This is who you are. And that's a moment. But there's a second sense in, in the way in which the word sanctification is used. And this is, um, we're looking at this now. And so the second idea is that the Holy Spirit not only sets us apart, but the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more like Jesus. And this is a process. This is an ongoing process. And so let's explore this a bit more. Sanctification describes the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. A process, a progressive work that makes us more and more free from sin, and more and more like Jesus. 
Just ponder it for a moment. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I've been on a journey. And, and I'm, I'm less selfish than I was. Oh, there's still work to go, though. But there's this journey where, where, where God just reveals things and works on me to become more like Christ, which is actually becoming more the man he created me to be. Paul says to the Corinthians, and Pastor Sheridan has touched on this verse already, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So because of what Jesus has done, the Spirit comes and does what the law can't. The law can point out what's wrong, but it can't change you. But the Spirit can come and change us to make us more and more in the glorious image of Christ. Uh, the Living Bible, again, I just happened to have come this way a couple of times here with the Living Bible, and here's what we read in the Living Bible, but we Christians can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him. See, within us, changing us from the inside out, so that what I do flows from who I am. As the I is changed and transformed. A journey, a process. As, as one writer puts it, the Bible isn't some cheap infomercial or inspirational tract that's cheering us on going, you can do it, while you struggle in your own strength, going, yay, you, try hard. No, rather, because the Spirit dwells within us, we have a new strength at work within our inner being that can produce the fruits of the Spirit. So while the works of the flesh, the sinful nature, no anger, rage, jealousy, lust. We've got to nail those to the cross. That's Paul's image of repenting. Nail them to the cross. Why? So they can die. And then let the Spirit grow His fruit within us so that we become more like God. What? Being more loving. Being more patient. My wife, going back to teaching after we'd been in isolation, said, you know, man, I need to be more patient with the kids. You know, she wasn't yelling at them or anything, but I need to be more patient with the kids. She's talking about partnering with the Spirit of God so that when she walks into that place and interacts with those children, that fruit can grow and be shown. That's the reality of dealing in, you know, there's a rubber meets the road example of the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. Patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yes, there's a battle within us. But with the Spirit, there's hope for real growth. The Spirit living in me combats the sin living in me. That's language straight out of Romans 7 and 8. And so because the Spirit is living within me, then he continues to shine a light in the darkness of my life, exposing sin, guiding us to repentance, leading us in paths of righteousness, giving us strength to walk the right way, to be the man I want to be. I know I can be shutting my ears to the voices from my past. So yes, we work hard to be disciplined. Yes, we strive. Think of, of the writer to the Hebrews. Uh, he says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. He throws it off. Or Paul uh, writes to the Philippians, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Paul is straining and striving. But Paul also says to the Philippians, he calls on believers to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who works it out? Believers. I work it out. 
I try and do what's right. I try and be disciplined. But the verse goes on to say, for, because God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. There's a mystery there. Oh, so you're saying, I do it, Simon. Yes, so it's all about me. No, God does it within you. He gets the glory. I oh, say, so God does it. Yes, so not me. No, you do. See, that's not a contradiction. That's a mystery and a reality. I, I, personally, I don't have any problem with it. I'm not, not going to explain it any more than that. I've got to work hard. If I stuff up, it's on me. God gets the glory. That's, that's just, there you go, nice practical theology. For me, anyway. I love the words of the British evangelist, Alan Redpath. He, he, he says this, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. That's, that, 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 that's the ongoing journey that every one of us is on. Or another writer puts it this way. Uh, he says, God is in the business not of whitewashing sins, but of transforming sinners. doesn't cover over things and go, it's all good. It looks to change the people that we are. That's freedom. Freedom isn't being able to do what you want. Freedom is being able to live according to the way that God has called us to live. That's freedom. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies us in two ways. First, he sets us apart. And second, he transforms us from within, helping us to become more and more like Jesus. I want to illustrate this, these two ideas this morning of the Spirit's sanctifying work, if I may. Imagine that you're walking around with a mate, and you wander past an old garage, and while you're there, you look in, and you see this. And you think, what a hunk of junk. What a rusted out waste of space. And you go to walk on, but your mate is just sitting there looking at it going gaga. And you think, come on, mate, we've got to go. KFC's only open for another hour. But he's, he's just looking at it, and he's, 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 he's just beside himself. You're thinking it's an eyesore, but suddenly his eyes light up, and you say, are you all right? And looking at this, he says, this is beautiful. You're like, what? And he says, mate, this is a 1962 Oldsmobile Starfire. Now, not, not, not the, not the uh, convertible, but the, the, the two-door hardtop. That, uh, and this is the model that outsold, it outsold the convertible by five to one in 1962. It was Oldsmobile's entry into the luxury car market that year. And you're thinking, what? What are you talking about? And he looks at you like you're dense, and he's wondering why you can't get it. And he says, come on, man, this is, they, they built this on, on, on the old Super 88's 123-inch wheelbase frame. It had a, had a more powerful V8. It had hydromatic drive. It had two-speed window wipers. It had uh, power steering, power brakes. It had, had a sports console with shifter, a tachometer. It had brushed aluminium trim. It had leather trim, dual exhausts. He, said, he goes, it could go 0 to 108.8 seconds. It could do the quarter mile in 16 and a half seconds flat. And eyes shining like a zealot, he just says, this is a classic. And you just think, what are you talking about? It's a pile of junk. But he wants it. 
And because he's married to your niece, you know she's not going to be happy when he takes it home and puts it on her lawn. That's not pertinent to the illustration. It just adds another layer of reality to the story. But he wants it. And so, what does he do? He buys it. He sets it apart. He claims it at his own. At great cost to himself, he makes sure he gets it. He sets it apart. It's now his. So he sanctified it in the first sense. Set apart. Sanctification in the first sense. But it's not finished. Because then the hard work of restoration begins. He spends hours, days, months, nay, years, working on this, working out the dents, cleansing out the rust, sourcing new parts, giving it a new paint job, cleaning it. It's a labor of love. And so he sanctifies it in the second sense in that there's a process, a progressive work of restoration, of cleansing, getting rid of the damage and restoring it to its original design and purpose so that it once again, eventually, you're going through the paint job, you're fixing it all up, so that eventually it's restored and you see it in the way that it should be so that the owner can go and take it to a show and put it on display so that he can bask in its glory. The person and the power of the Holy Spirit is essential in the life of the believer. Sets us apart from the world to God and transforms us from the inside, making us more like Jesus. To use Pastor Sheridan's language from last week, those of you who heard a wonderful message last week, the Spirit augments our lives. And, uh, and, and so the Spirit wants to tinker under the hoods of our lives. So He sets us apart. He loves us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us like that. And so He lifts up the hood and He goes, Oh, Simon, you've been running on the wrong fuel. You need to run on me, but you've been seeking your worth and your power in all the wrong places. Gee, we need to fix that up. There's only a couple of spark plugs there. We need to fix all that up. You, you know, the whole source of your power is wrong. We need to buff out this, this insecurity and this, this anger, and we need to, to get some humility and some love in there. That'll help you run better. We need to tune up the intimacy with me a bit, get the power flowing through this baby. And so the Holy Spirit wants to tinker in our lives. Loves, knows us so intimately. And yet knowing us as he does, warts and all, adores us. And wants to restore us to that place where we glorify him. Not so that he can go, yeah. See, see there's something about as he looks out for our best, that's what's best for us. And then we seek to glorify him. That's best for us. It's just this circle of selflessness. Together, yeah. so we seek to glorify God because ultimately the glory resides with Him. But together with the Father and the Son, the Spirit works so that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been set apart, justified by the blood of Christ, adopted into the family of God, 
In a moment, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. But that's not all of salvation. We are being saved from the power of sin. And that's sanctification. That's the process of being made holy. That's, that's where, where uh, God comes into our lives and, and there are pockets of sin where sin still dwells and he comes in. And, and even though the, the, the war has been won, there are some mop-up operations that need to be sorted out. And so that ongoing process of sanctification. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's ultimate sanctification. Glorified. So as I come to a close, to become more like Jesus, we we work in partnership with God's Spirit. We read the Word, we pray, we worship, we bite our tongues, we apologize, and we look to get back on track, we persevere, but we do it all in partnership with the Holy Spirit who works with us Strengthening us, guiding us, leading us, empowering us, transforming us from within. He brings power for a changed life, a life that belongs to God. And the Spirit brings the divine presence into our lives, He establishes our position. Uh, set apart as children of God and He brings heaven's power working in us and through us to extend God's kingdom and to see God glorified as we're salt and light to a world that needs Him even though it doesn't realise it. John 1 tells us that Jesus came to His own and they received Him not. That's just part of what happens when the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness clash but we still respond in love. We still respond with forgiveness. We still seek to represent God well. And so this morning, for some of you, deep in your spirits, you may be thinking that idea of being set apart to God, that's where I need to be. Too many voices going on in your head telling you who you are and often those voices are just dragging you down. They're lies, but you believe them so long, they're your truth. But there's a moment of light here for you to see that actually, no, there's another reality, a reality where you stand strong and free and impact this world for good, where you're loved and cherished. So I pray this morning that you'd be able to have your ears stopped to those voices to the left and the right that would drag you down and that you would be hearing the voice of your heavenly Father that would be speaking life to you.